Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you, Lord, for all that you are. Lord, we praise you for your goodness and your mercy to those who are unworthy. And Lord, we are all so unworthy. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your power. For Lord, your power is towards those who believe. Lord, your power is towards those who have faith in you. And we praise you, Lord, that your power avails for us. Lord, for you have saved us, not just from physical death, but from eternal death. Lord, we pray that as we approach this passage of Scripture, that you would cause us to turn to you in humility, and in faith, trusting that you will do all that you have promised that you will do by your grace and for your glory. Amen. I ask you could please stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture. This morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 7, 1 to 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him elders, sorry, sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am, an un I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to my, and to my servant, or sorry, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. He was a high-ranking officer in a powerful army. He was a great man and highly esteemed by those above him and by those who served him. But he needed help, serious help. The disease was incurable. And then word came to him about one in Israel who could heal. The problem was that his nation was at war with Israel. Nevertheless, he sent word through a Jewish ruler asking for help. He never even met nor saw the healer, but healing came nonetheless. He was told to wash seven times in the Jordan River and he would be made clean. I'm speaking, of course, of Naaman 
the Syrian commander who sought help from Elisha the prophet. The similarities between Naaman and the Roman centurion in our narrative this morning are striking. Both were officers that were in their own areas, in their own areas, the most powerful armies in the world. Both of their nations were at war with Israel. Both were respected and highly esteemed. Both needed healing, one for himself and one for his cherished slave. Both sent word to a man of God for healing. In Naaman's case, it was Elisha. The centurion sought help from Jesus himself. Both situations raised the question of why God would heal a soldier whose nation was at war with Israel. In both cases, the men received the help that they sought, but neither met the one who helped them. There's a large difference between the character of each man. For when Naaman received instruction about washing in the Jordan, he balked disdaining the Jordan in preference for the rivers of Syria. The centurion, however, humbled himself. He deemed himself unworthy of Jesus' help and unworthy to go to him personally or even to have Jesus come to him. However, it seems that both Naaman and the centurion became worshipers of God. In Luke 7, having completed the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus now returns to Capernaum on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum was where he had cast out demons. He'd healed many, including Peter's mother-in-law. This is also where he had called his first disciples. And again, Jesus performs a series of miracles demonstrating his compassion and demonstrating his authority over disease and death. In so doing, Jesus also provides the occasion for the demonstration of the nature of true discipleship. As you remember, this was the focus of the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus had just said that true discipleship is demonstrated in the one who hears Jesus' words and acts on those words, that the faith of such a person is unshakable, like a house built on a rock. And now Luke presents a clear example of such faith. The centurion is a man who demonstrates faith. He demonstrates faith in Jesus' ability to heal. The centurion hadn't heard Jesus directly, but he heard about Jesus, and he'd certainly heard about his works and his teaching. And the centurion acted on that faith. He asked Jesus for help, all the while conscious of his own unworthiness to receive it. The centurion has the right assessment of himself, of himself and the right assessment of Jesus. In this, the centurion presents an example for us. We need to know that Jesus is the only source of the help that we need. We need to come to Jesus in humility, understanding our poverty of spirit and the deliverance that only he can give. There are three key points to this passage. Verses 1 to 5, others' assessment of the centurion. In verses 6 to 8, the centurion's assessment of himself. And then verses 9 and 10, Jesus' assessment of the centurion. As we consider this passage, ask yourself, what is your assessment of yourself? Ask yourself, what is your assessment of Jesus? And even more importantly, ask yourself, what is Jesus' assessment of you? 
So first, let's look at others' assessment of the centurion in verses 1 to 5. Jesus has completed the Sermon on the Plain that he preached before many crowds. Then he goes back to Capernaum, which has become somewhat of a base of operations for him. And in verse 2, we meet the centurion. We don't actually meet the centurion. Although the centurion is central to this narrative, we only hear about him as his words and actions are described by other characters in the narrative. Centurions were officers in the Roman legion. They were commanders of around 100 soldiers. They possessed considerable authority, and theirs was a prestigious and high-paying position, usually held by career soldiers. The Greek historian Polybius described the qualifications looked for by the Romans in centurions. This, they must not be so much venturesome seekers of, after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. They are never to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground, even to die at their posts. They were courageous men of integrity. And you really see some of these characteristics reflected here in this narrative. We're introduced to six centurions in the New Testament. And amazingly, they are all presented in a positive light. At least two of them, in fact, likely three of them, it seems, become Christians. And this is remarkable, since the Romans were an enemy force occupying Israel. Now, this man would have been an interesting character for Luke who was himself a Gentile, writing to a Gentile, remember Theophilus, who was very likely a ranking Roman official. The centurion, we're told, also had a servant, actually a slave who was sick, who was at the point of death. Matthew adds that the slave was paralyzed. Now many of us cringe at the thought of slavery and would judge the centurion negatively, negatively for, whole, for having a slave. Now, there's no doubt that slavery is a result of the fall. However, slavery in the ancient Near East was very different from the popular image of African men and women kidnapped and shipped to America in chains. Roman slavery was not racial. Roman slaves were represented from, from every nation around the Mediterranean, around the, the, the known world. The vast majority of slaves were taken as prisoners of war. Some were enslaved because of failure to pay debt or as criminal punishment. Some even sold themselves into slavery for upward mobility. Some would serve as household managers, as business managers, tutors, even doctors. Slaves were an important part of Roman culture where one-third of the population was made up of slaves. Nonetheless, Slaves were still generally regarded as property, as human tools, and some suffered at the cruel hands of their masters. But the centurion, we are told, is different. Luke says that the centurion highly valued his slave. Now, this doesn't appear to be financial value. Rather, this slave was highly regarded. He was precious to the centurion. So here we begin to see the character of the centurion. He cares for a slave. Then the centurion heard about Jesus. He heard that Jesus had healed people. And again, almost certainly he'd heard what Jesus had taught as well. But he didn't just passively wring his hands and worry. He did something about it. 
I wonder, do you do something about it when somebody that, that you care for, somebody you love, is in jeopardy? Do you just wring your hands and worry, or do you do something about it? Do you go to Jesus? Do you go to Jesus? The centurion sent the elders of the Jews to go to ask Jesus to come and to heal his slave. Let's just stop there for a second. I want to make a quick point about inerrancy. First, this is somewhat different from the parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, that has no mention of the elders or their friends, but seems that it seems to say that the centurion goes to Jesus himself. Now, some see this as evidence against inerrancy, saying that the scripture is contradicting itself, but as we know, the scriptures never contradict themselves. The apparent contradiction is easily resolved, for sending emissaries in one's place is tantamount to going to your, yourself, especially in that culture. As Leon Moore says, what a man does through agents he may be send, said to do himself. An envoy who carries the signet of the king is said to speak for the king. In Canada, this is one of the duties of the PMO, the office of the prime minister. They represent the prime minister when they perform duties for him, like answering his mail. So these Jewish elders come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion asking for help. Very likely, Luke provides this additional detail to highlight the centurion's response to Jesus. And again, this makes sense in the, in the context, given that these details help to establish Luke's point about the response of a Gentile official to Jesus, since Luke is writing to Theophilus, a Gentile official. So the centurion sends the Jewish elders to the centurion, and the elders, Luke mentions, now here are, are likely civic leaders, not religious leaders. The latter did not think very much of Jesus. Nevertheless, this is an odd relationship. The Jews, whether civic or religious, did not think very much of the Romans. Not only did they view them as unclean, as Gentile dogs, but, but they also viewed them as, and they were, the, the conquerors of their nation. But this relationship was quite different. The elders went to Jesus as the centurion had wanted them to. However, they didn't just relay the message on the centurion's behalf. They advocate on his behalf, commending his character. They tell Jesus that the centurion is worthy of his help. And this, they say, is on the basis of two facts. One, that he loves their nation. That he loves their nation. Now, this is, this is an odd attitude from a leader in a conquering army. Usually there would, would be disdain for a conquered people. They were technically enemies. And not only does he love their nation, but he built the Jews a synagogue. Now some have suggested that the centurion was a God-fearer, God one who worshipped God, but didn't go so far as to become circumcised and to become a Jewish proselyte. Now that's not improbable, what we can't know for certain. The Romans, on occasion, might have helped the Jews even to build a synagogue for their own ends. Because having a synagogue would actually serve the purposes of the Romans. The historian Josephus notes that Caesar Augustus valued synagogues because they promoted order and morality. But Roman interest clearly isn't the centurion's motivation for building the synagogue. He seems to be genuinely philanthropic. He loves the nation. 
For further evidence, we'll see more deeply into the centurion's character in a moment. Now, it's a mark in favor of the centurion's character that the elders thought highly of him. I hope that those around you speak highly of you. What do your neighbors say about you? They, they should be saying good things about your character. But the Jewish elders had a wrong assessment of the centurion. They had a wrong assessment of his worthiness. Do you consider yourself worthy of Jesus' help? Does the thought ever enter your mind, I've done this for you, God. Now please do that for me. Now you might not pray in such crass terms, but maybe it's something like this. I've given faithfully to the church. Please let me have this raise. I've been faithful to share the gospel with others. Please save my kids. I've served you day in and day out. Please heal me of this disease. One that I was guilty of, of at times in my single years was, Lord, I've been faithful in my singleness. Please give me a wife. Do you see what's behind that kind of thinking? When you and I think in these terms, we see blessings from the Lord as seen not by coming from his grace, but coming by our works. We're deceiving ourselves into thinking that God owes us. Now, the Jewish elders were right in one sense. The centurion did do some good deeds. But loving Israel and building a synagogue and even caring for your slave, as virtuous as that might have been, does not make someone worthy of Jesus' help. Furthermore, these elders judged the centurion based on their standard of righteousness, which was, surprise, surprise, based on what he had done for them. I wonder, do you base your understanding of your own righteousness based on what you have done for God? If so, you have a wrong understanding of your worthiness. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Every, even, everything you do, even every good thing you do, is stained by sin. You have to repent of your best deeds. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one is righteous and no one deserves Jesus' help. But the centurion understands something that the Jewish elders don't. So let's consider the centurion's assessment of himself, verses 6 to 8. First look at the beginning of verse 6. Jesus went with them. Jesus didn't stop and say to the elders, look, let me explain something to you about worthiness. You don't really understand my grace. No, he doesn't say that. He simply went with them. His willingness to help wasn't based on any apparent worthiness in the centurion, and it wasn't based on a proper understanding in the elders. Jesus' willingness to help, once again, is all of grace. It's all grace. But as Jesus approached the centurion's house, another delegation arrived. This one comprised of the centurion's friends. 
and they relay the centurion's words precisely. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Why is the centurion sending his friends to tell Jesus that he doesn't need to come after just sending others asking him to come? Now again, some see this as evidence against inerrancy. However, there are many possible reasons why he would have done this. He might have had second thoughts. He might have felt conviction. The, the Lord may have shown him something in the scriptures. We don't know for certain. But what is clear is that his humility is on display. Luke wants us to see that the centurion has an accurate perception of himself. And more importantly, an accurate perception of Jesus. The centurion's assessment of himself is contrasted with the assessment of the elders of the Jews. Who had declared him worthy. But he didn't regard himself as worthy. He knew he wasn't worthy. He knew he wasn't worthy even to have Jesus come under his roof. Now, some commentators suggest that the centurion is sensitive to the ceremonial law, for, for Jesus would have, would have been considered unclean for entering a Gentile's house. But Jesus wouldn't have let that stop him. Remember how Jesus touched the leper in Luke chapter 4. Jesus abrogated the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law pointed to Jesus, but with Jesus' arrival, the, the ceremonial law had served its purpose and was no longer necessary. But I don't think, I don't think the considerations of the ceremonial law are what motivated to tell the centurion not to come. He gives a real reason right there in verse 6. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. And he further explains in verse 7. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. This isn't against the ceremonial law. There is nothing in the ceremonial law that prohibited a Jew from talking to a Gentile. Again, the centurion has a sense of his own unworthiness. His assessment of himself was correct. He was unworthy, especially compared to Jesus. Now it's easy to compare yourself with others, isn't it? It's easy to, to find someone who you perceive as, to be, as being more sinful than yourself. And if you can't find someone, you can slander them in your mind so that they become more sinful than you in your eyes. But the centurion was humbled before the greatness of Jesus, even though he had never seen Jesus. He had heard enough and he believed the centurion was humble. His humility is clear. First, notice that Jesus, that, that the centurion addresses Jesus, addresses Jesus as Lord. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, but nonetheless, it's a term of deference and respect. But remember who this was. This was a high-ranking Roman officer in the occupying army. Imagine an, a Nazi captain addressing a French peasant during this way, in this way during the, the, the German occupation of France. But this is no French peasant. The centurion recognizes, in some sense, who Jesus is. He hadn't met Jesus, but he knew enough about him to show him deference. He had a high view of Jesus, and that necessitated a low view of himself. 
Now again, many commentators believe that he was actually recognized Jesus as the Messiah. But again, we can't say for certain. But we can know that this man recognized God's power at work in Jesus. And as we'll see in a moment, his response is clearly described as faith. It's faith. He didn't even deem himself worthy to come to Jesus personally. The elders of Israel deemed him worthy to have Jesus help him, but he made no such claim. Now, he is certainly presented as an honorable man. However, he understood that before Jesus, he was totally unworthy. This isn't just humility. This is accuracy. He sees the situation for what it is. It's reminiscent of Peter in Luke 5.8 as he fell down on his knees before Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Think about the contrast between the centurion and Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings 5 that I described in the introduction. He was initially unwilling to wash in the Jordan according to the instructions of Elisha so as to be healed of his leprosy, and he instead went away in a rage because he believed that the rivers of Damascus were superior to all the rivers of Israel. It's pride. But thankfully, on the advice of his servants, Naaman humbled himself and washed in the Jordan and was healed. And he even seemed to become a worshiper of the one true God. Friends, humility is a character trait that the scriptures highly commend. James quotes Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4.6. Peter quotes, quotes it as well in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. In James 4.10, James says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. But humility doesn't make anyone worthy of receiving help from Jesus any more than any other positive attribute or good thing that you do. Humility is not, is, humility is not what makes Jesus help you, but humility is a condition without which he will not help you. The proud person cannot see their condition. The proud person cannot really see their need. They can't really come to Jesus. I referenced the tax collector and the Pharisee in, from Luke 18 a few weeks ago. The humble tax collector wouldn't even look upwards to heaven, but, but beat his breast and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now he went home justified rather than the self-righteous Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 14. Are you a proud person? Are you a proud person? Well, the reality is, to a certain extent, we are all proud people. But how does your pride rear its ugly head? Do you brag when you've done something good? Do you, are you hurt when others don't recognize that you've done something good? Do you judge others? Or do you ignore others? Are you self-righteous? Or are you self-centered? Do you exhibit false humility? These, these are all examples of pride, and they are common in, in every one of us to a certain extent. The proud person will not admit 
that they are that they are proud but the humble person sees his pride humility is one of those things that that as soon as you think you have it it's gone you say i'm humble oops i'm not humble we, it's, humility is something that we chase after, but will never fully achieve. The humble person admits, admits that they are proud. The humble person is willing to ask others if they can see pride in them. Pride is ugly, and pride is blinding. Not only can it not see itself, but pride blinds us to a host of other sins. Are you willing to ask someone you trust whether they see pride in you, or probably more accurately, how they see pride in you. And by someone I trust, I mean someone you trust who loves you enough to tell you the truth. I've said it repeatedly, a man who has friends doesn't need a mirror. A good friend can be used by the Holy Spirit. A spouse can be used by the Holy Spirit to help you to see things you wouldn't other, otherwise see. But don't just rely on other people. Rely on God. Do the hard work of getting on your knees before God and asking Him to reveal pride in your heart. He will. God will be faithful to answer that prayer. And then by God's grace, confess your pride as sin and trust that he is faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God will not just ex expose your pride. God will deal with your pride. Now I have some hard news for you. It's probably going to hurt. But it's going to be for your good and it's going to be for God's glory. God is omniscient and God is faithful. He will answer that prayer. Do you want to grow in humility? Look to Jesus. Not only does Jesus provide the perfect and ultimate example of humility, but he is God the Son, condescending to take on human flesh and to dwell amongst sinful men and women and to die in their place to save them from, from their sins. That is the epitome of humility. But Jesus is also the epitome of perfection. And so by considering the perfections of Jesus, you see your own unworthiness. You see your own unworthiness. And then you flee to Christ for forgiveness for your sin. The centurion is an example of a Gentile and a prestigious Gentile at that who demonstrates humble faith in Jesus. His humility is an example for, the, for Theophilus to consider. He is an example for us to consider. The centurion is humble, but he also has faith. His, his humility before Jesus opens the door to faith in Jesus. And so his friends pass along the message to Jesus at the end of verse 7. But say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion knows that Jesus doesn't just have authority over disease, but he also has authority over distance. He knew that he was unworthy to have Jesus come to him. He knew that he was unworthy to go to Jesus. But nonetheless, he's bold enough to ask for help. Are you bold enough to ask for help? The centurion just did, didn't have just a different assessment of himself. He had a different assessment of Jesus. He recognizes the authority of Jesus' word. And he says, speak a word. He knew that Jesus didn't even need to be there in order for his servant to be healed. Now, we haven't seen anything like this in the scriptures so far. 
Daryl Bach explains that the word of Jesus is given unseen and from a distance can deliver the precious servant from his illness. It is a profound insight that the centurion possesses and expresses. Even though physically absent, Jesus can now show his presence effectively. The lesson is a key one for Luke's readers who no longer have Jesus' physical, visible experience. Brothers and sisters, presence, brothers and sisters, the centurion is an example, not just of humility, but of faith in Jesus, even though he has not seen Jesus. He provides an example for, the, for Theophilus and for us, not just in his humility, but also in his faith. Though Theophilus had never seen Jesus, he was still called to have faith in Jesus. Though we have not seen Jesus, we are likewise called to have faith in Jesus. The centurion concludes, in, his emissaries conclude in verse 8. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the centurion, through his emissaries here, is telling a parable to the one who used parables so powerfully. Although he has authority, he recognizes that he is under authority. Now, there were generally six centurions in each Roman cohort and ten cohorts in a legion. Each legion had six tribunes to whom the centurions were subordinate. And they were all ultimately subordinate to Augustus Caesar, the Roman emperor. The centurion was familiar with authority structures. He was also, also familiar with, with authority that was exercised remotely. And that's what he's doing here, isn't it? He's, he's actually first sending the Jewish elders, and then he's sending his friends. He had soldiers and slaves under him who were to do his, his bidding. He didn't need to be there for his commands to be obeyed. And he understands that neither did Jesus need to be there for his commands to be obeyed. The centurion is arguing from the lesser to the greater. As the, as the centurion himself is subject to the authority of his commanding officer, so is Jesus subject to the authority of God for the purposes of redemption. Likewise, as soldiers and servants are subject to the centurion's authority as a military commander, so disease and distance are subject to Jesus' authority as God's representative. The point is that in more than one way, with soldiers and with slaves, the centurion's commands are obeyed and ultimately Caesar's commands are obeyed. Disease and distance are subject to Jesus' authority and ultimately to God's authority. The centurion's parable reveals that he understands that Jesus has authority and that his will will be done no matter where he is because God's will will be done no matter where he is. The centurion had faith without seeing Jesus face to face. You haven't seen Jesus face to face. Do you have faith that his will will be done? You can't see Jesus. Jesus isn't here bodily. But do you have faith in Jesus? Where is Jesus? Jesus is right now, at this very moment, interceding for you before the throne of God. That's where Jesus is. Jesus is praying for you even at this very moment. Isn't that glorious? Jesus isn't physically here. Jesus is not physically present with us. But Jesus is physically present with the Father in heaven, 
praying for you? Do you have faith that his will will be done? Do you have faith in Jesus? Well, finally, let's consider what is by far the most important assessment. Jesus' assessment of the centurion in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marvels. Now you don't hear that very often in the scriptures. Only on precisely two occasions. This one is also related in Matthew 8.10 and in Mark 6.6. 6. Only twice is Jesus said to marvel at others. Once because of belief, in this case, and once because of unbelief. And interestingly, they're, they're in the very opposite situations and circumstances that you would expect. In Mark 6.6, 6, Jesus marvels at the unbelief in Nazareth. And here he marvels at the faith of a Roman centurion. Unbelief in Israel, belief in a Gentile. We're going to see how this becomes especially apparent in Acts, that the Jews are rejecting Jesus and that the Gentiles are embracing him. Jesus marvels, especially at the centurion's recognition of his authority, even at a distance. The centurion knows that Jesus' authority is delegated Authority. He has been entrusted with the authority of God. Joel Green says, This centurion seems to know more than he ought. Luke's readers know that Jesus has been commissioned by God and that the power of the Spirit is operative in his ministry. The centurion seems to act on the basis of similar awareness. Well, Jesus marveling here is not a private experience. He turns to the gathered crowd that has been following him. seems that there's been some of the people who are following him on the, from the Sermon on the Plain have continued to follow him. Already by this point in his ministry, it's very, very difficult for Jesus to go anywhere without a crowd following him. And so he turns to the crowd and shares his amazement with them. This was a teaching moment. He wanted these people to understand. So he says to the crowd, the vast majority of whom were Jews, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He hadn't seen this level of faith in any of them. He hadn't seen it in the Jewish elders who came to him with a message from the centurion. He hadn't seen it in the Pharisees. He hadn't seen it in the crowds who came to him for healing. He hadn't even seen it in his disciples. This is amazing. A Gentile, a Roman officer, exercising exemplary faith. The centurion's recognition of Jesus' authority is tied to the recognition of his own unworthiness. So then he exemplifies humility and faith. In the Christian context, to speak of faith normally means more than, than mere belief that he would heal. It almost always refers to saving faith. And it seems very likely that this was the case here. That this man actually had faith in Jesus unto salvation. The centurion seems to be following the faith we've already seen in Luke. That of Mary in, in Luke 145, the, and of the friends of the paralytic in Luke 520. Faith that acts. 
looks like we're seeing the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy from Luke 2, 32, that Jesus will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Finally, in verse 10, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Matthew adds the detail that the slave was healed at the very moment that Jesus replied. Jesus said, Go and let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Matthew 8, 13. Now each of Jesus' healings tells us something about who Jesus is. This healing points to his omnipotence and also to his omnipresence. And it is Mind-blowing to think about this. But although Jesus was there incarnate, physically before the friends and the, and the elders of Israel, he was also, God the Son was also omnipresent. Now this, this bends my mind. I can't fully comprehend this, but somehow Jesus was physically there and, phys- and, and also spiritually remained the omnipresent God. So Jesus is somehow here. And Jesus was also there with the centurion's friends and the elders and also back home with the centurion's servant. He's everywhere. I don't understand this. But this is what the scripture teaches, that he maintains all of the attributes of God, even as he was incarnate on the earth. The Jewish elders assessed the centurion on his merits. The centurion assessed himself on his lack of merits. Jesus assessed the centurion on his faith. Jesus shows himself faithful in response to such faith. So the implicit question then follows to those who were the first hearers of this incident and also to us. Will you trust Jesus like this centurion? The centurion treated his his servant with love and compassion. He even loved Israel, the, the nation that his army had conquered. He had an understanding of his own unworthiness. These are all good qualities. But what he needed was faith. What he needed was faith. He needed to look beyond his merits, beyond his lack of merit, and look to Christ. Earlier we we sang Joseph Hart's hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of filthiness or fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. We've seen Jesus' authority over disease and distance. Next week, we're going to see his authority over death. Anyone, anywhere, at any time can receive help from Jesus. The help that only Jesus can give. We're going to meet another centurion later in Luke's gospel who will display similar faith in Jesus in Luke 23, 47. 
after Jesus gave up his life and on the cross and said, it is finished. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Well, three days later, Jesus would show his, his authority over death as he, would, as he would take up his life again, as he would rise bodily from the tomb. Jesus is sovereign over death, over your death. Jesus is sovereign over everything. If you are here as a Christian this morning, Jesus has healed you. He has saved you not just from a disease. He has saved you from sin. He has saved you from death. But if you are here this morning as an unbeliever, then death is still on you. You are still, you still stand condemned before the holy God, before Jesus. Will you repent of your sins? Will you see your sin, call it for what it is, turn from it, and put your faith in Jesus? Will you follow in the footsteps of faith like this Roman centurion? Let's pray together. Our glorious God, we praise you for your abundant grace and mercy to us as unworthy sinners. Lord, we are only worthy of your wrath. But Lord, you have poured upon us your love and your grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Would you help us all to look to Jesus in humility and faith? Would you help us all to trust savingly in Jesus? for our good and for the glory of your name. Amen.